Amen. Man, we are so looking forward to Easter. We are excited when God gave us the plan to go back to the school, to throw back to Easter. We are, uh, we were very, I was nervous. Uh, we are in the process now seeing how God is providing a way uh, to make that happen. I hope that you are as well. hope you are signed up to help. If you're not already a part of a ministry team that's functioning, uh, we are creating a ministry team, especially for Easter and the setup and teardown. So we're the OG setup and teardown crew, right? Jeremiah screaming stage crew in the, new, in the old gym uh, brings shutters to my spine, right? But uh, we are... Uh, we are really excited about how God is going to use that time of worship. And as Jeremiah said last week, man, we want to remove every barrier we can to the gospel, right? And so if that is not being in the four walls of a church, then we want to do that. We want to provide that opportunity and pray that God would move. And, and pray with me. Pray with me toward Easter's. From the very beginning, as soon as these plans became known uh, before we begin as we began discussing it, even as early as last year, um, we knew that we wanted to do that this year. Uh, we have been bathing this in prayer. Please, church, pray with me that God does a mighty, mighty work. It's going to be a lot of fun. Man, we're just going to pray that God is going to move in power. We're in the fifth of six messages entitled, Abide in Me. We're in John chapter 16, so you can turn there. In the last chapter of the farewell discourse, as Jesus is telling his disciples how they are to abide in him, seeing as to how they will no longer be able to be with him physically. And so we've looked at many things, the Holy Spirit being the key figure in this passage, in these two chapters, two and a half chapters, the Holy Spirit is a fixture in what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? I can't live with Jesus. I can't go with Jesus. I can't eat with Jesus. I, but I have been called to be in Christ, to abide in him. And we do that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we've talked about many aspects of that. Today, in the beginning verses of John chapter 16, we're going to see the advantage of the Spirit. This message is entitled, The Prophet of the Spirit. And so whether you are joining us in person or online, thank you for being here. But God has an incredible word for us today if we will just draw near. So for over two and a half years, I've been preaching, and you have already built preconceived notions, not really preconceived, I've told you, uh, that there are things that your pastor skills that every self-respecting man should have some of that your pastor has very little of. Uh, I've already incriminated myself. You know that I am not handy 
right? I've told you that. I say cute things like I'm about as handy as a foot, right? My idea as a pastor of being handy is to know somebody who's handy. And then I can, we can fix whatever's going on in our house. And hopefully it's at a discounted rate because I'm their pastor, right? Um, I am not very handy. Uh, I think I've actually used as a sermon illustration before my small little bag of tools that was the sum total of all the tools that I have, right? So if things get too crazy, I ain't got the the tools necessary to pull it off. Right, I'm terrible with construction and any of those sorts of things, right? You know guys that just can rig anything, they can just rig up anything and it'll work. Right? It may not look good, but it'll, just, it'll work. I'm not that guy. My wife, her dream is to live in an old house with the wraparound deck and the little porch swing. And we got as close as we could in the village because immediately I think, I don't think about how cute and quaint that house looks. I think about the maintenance that is required in an old house. And I ain't got, I ain't just got, ain't got what it takes to pull it off, right? Well, add this to a list of things that every self-respecting man ought to know that I did not know until very, very recently. So I love to duck hunt. And uh, where we duck hunt, there is a very specific type of vehicle that it takes to get back to the hole that we hunt. Uh, you need a four-wheel drive. You don't just need any four-wheel drive. You need a lifted four-wheel drive, and you need to be able to, you need to know what to do in a mud hole. I do know how to ride in the mud, okay? So before you start, you know, really shaming me and taking my man card, I do know how to go in the mud. Uh, but one of my, one of our family members was coming. It's just what our family does. We hunt. One of my family members were coming to relieve us. We hunt public land where if you're not there, that spot will leave. Somebody will take it. And so I was switching out with one of my cousins one day, and he knew that he didn't have a vehicle that was able to get back there. And so he was going to use my dad's truck that I had driven back there. And then no problem, right? I'll drive out. You can get in the truck. You can drive back to the hole. I'll take your vehicle back to the house, and I'll meet you tomorrow morning. No problem, right? Well, I get out. We switch vehicles. I'm still doing some things, getting, getting some of my camo off and all that kind of stuff, waiters, those sorts of things. And so it takes me a minute. So he, he's gone. Thankfully, Jeremy is gone, all right? And I get in his car ready to drive off, and I look down. You men know where I'm going with this, don't you? It's a stick. Now, Jeremy's operating under the assumption that every self-respecting man knows how to drive a stick because it is just a manly thing to know how to do. What he doesn't know is the history of my vehicles or my grandparents' two Oldsmobiles, right? And, and like, I, I got no idea how to drive a, a stick. And so I am in the sticks, all right, with one bar when things are going well, and I am trying to watch a 15, because I can't admit it, right? I can't admit, I have no idea what I'm doing, Jeremy. I can't admit that. That, that moment has passed, right? I watch a 15-minute video on how to drive a stick, right? And I know, like, I, I know right now, like, Bodie it may leave our church over this very, this very story, but it's just where I'm at, and I learned. So I learned how to drive a stick. Now, I will say we stalled many times, but I got it from Scottsboro to nor to hazel green i drove that stick so it the transmission may never be the same but i did it right and i and now i've done it a few times since and so now i kind of know how to drive a stick but i here's what you learn when you drive a stick transitions between gears is important right specifically i learned first gear 
first gear is a little tricky. And once you get first gear, all the rest of them happen pretty easily, right? And I remember stalling out in the middle of intersections, and oh man, I was so mad and frustrated. I just, I felt like I, you know, by the end of the way there, I was just exhausted, ready just to take a nap. Like it was, it was terrible, right? But I taught myself how to drive a stick. Transitions are difficult. But they're also necessary. If you've driven a stick for any amount of time, you know you're not getting from Scottsboro to Hazel Green in first gear, right? Or you could. You might as well walk, though, right? And so, and so I learned, taught myself how to drive a stick because I realized the transitions are difficult, but they're necessary. So Jesus is taking his disciples through a similar transition. He is taking them from living a life with Jesus to living a life in Jesus. This is fundamentally different. This is a paradigm shift. And they are about to endure some incredible, incredible pushback in this transition. This isn't a seamless transition. This is a transition that is difficult for the disciples to understand. And so Jesus begins to deal with this issue. The whole contextual background, right, of Jesus's farewell discourse, the last words that he is going to share with his disciples before he goes to the cross, is related to this transition. What is going to happen when I am gone? And so the absence of Jesus' physical presence, they will learn to abide in him. But this was not well received by his disciples. Look first at the sadness of the disciples. The sadness of the disciples. John 16, beginning in verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. They, being the world, will put you out of the synagogues. They will excommunicate you. They will take you out of the cultural hub of the world that you have lived in, right, as a Jew. They will excommunicate you. They will cast you out of the synagogues, the Jewish places of worship. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. So not only are they going to excommunicate you, but many of you will die. All 11 of the 12 disciples were killed. They were martyred. And the one that escaped an active martyrdom died in exile, right? And so all of them would endure this suffering. Right, But listen what he says, and they will do all these things because they have not known the Father nor me. This is what Jeremiah spoke of last week. We are loved by God, but we are hated by the world. And just as love is, requires action, hatred also is accompanied by action. And he's telling them this is not going to be an easy time to live in. Right? The world hates you. Why do I know the world hates you? Because it hated me first. Look at verse 4. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Right? You would see, you would witness my betrayal. You would witness those that would shun me, those that would shame me, those that would um, stand in opposition to me. I was with you, though. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? Right? I am leaving, and none of you are asking the right questions. You're just moping. You're sad. 
you're sorrowful, you're in despair, you're worried about what this new chapter of your life is going to look like. This difficult transition in your life. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Man, there is nothing like misery that can steal our mission. There is nothing like personal misery that we allow ourselves to feel sorry enough for ourselves that we will completely neglect the needs of others and what Christ has called us to do, right? And so they're in the middle of despair. They're sad. This is the sadness of the disciples because Jesus is leaving. Now listen to what he says in verse 7. You've missed it. If, if all you get is that I'm leaving, disciples, you've missed it. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You are sad, you're in despair, but I am doing something that you don't understand yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, it will all be made clear. So I brought, I actually had Will pick this up at my office today. I thought my diploma was there. It is not. This is just uh, a, a award that I received. But it proves that I graduated from college, right? I graduated from the University of Mobile. Uh, loved my time there. Loved everybody there. Um, but when I look at this sheet of paper. When I look at this in my office or wherever it happens to be hung, I immediately, I don't think about the academic pursuit that college was. Yes, I learned a lot, learned how to more efficiently, rightly divide and effectively divide the word of truth, right? But uh, I, I also experienced a lot. You see, college was a significant time of transition in my life. In college, I went down to the University of Mobile, 300 plus miles away, with the person I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Newsflash, her name was not Becca. Right? So not who I ended up with, but I knew you could not have convinced me heading down to college that this was not going to be my wife. And so when we hung out with friends, we all hung out together, right? We built a friend group, and about three or four weeks in, we were no longer dating. And throughout my upbringing, man, I had an incredible family. I had relationships. I had friendships that I could rely on. But in my freshman year of college, I learned a very, very hard-fought-for hard lesson. I learned maybe for the very first time what it meant for God to be sufficient in my life. God had put me in a place with a woman I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, so that was, I was good. I had, that was the only relationship I had, and we had had a lot of friends, but obviously she was prettier than me because that's not hard to do, right? And so why would my friends hang out with me when they could hand out, hang out with a prettier woman, right? And so I lost my friends. I lost everything in the matter of a few days, and all I had, 400 miles away from my family and all the love I've known, all I had was Christ. And for about eight months, some of the most difficult days of my life, there was a transition happening in my life. That I learned what it meant 
for God to meet all of our needs, even when there was nothing to fall back on. And I think about that, and when I think about my college days, and I think about this achievement, I, I don't think about the sorrow. I know it happened. I know it was difficult. But when I think back on college, you know what, I, you know what I'm immediately, the emotion that immediately comes to my mind? Thanksgiving. I am thankful. I don't know that I would ever want to repeat some of the stuff that I went through in that time in my life, but I am so thankful for that time. It prepared me for marriage. It prepared me for ministry. It prepared me when things would go wrong. It prepared me when I would be hurt and when all I'd have was the calling of God on my life to prove to me that I knew I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. God taught me incredible lessons. So when I look back on those times, I don't focus on the suffering. I focus on the refinement. I focus on what Christ did in my life in those times through his Holy Spirit. And so what happens is the most difficult days of the church were ahead for the disciples. And we know that, right? They were, they were ahead. They were about to endure intense persecution. They were about to endure being banished from society, from culture. Many, some would be exiled. They would be persecuted. They would be killed. Jesus, in fact, would set an example of suffering for the disciples. He would suffer. And he said, guess what? They hate me, and I'm your master. They're going to hate you as my servant. He didn't pull punches in this. Philippians 3, 10 through 11, Paul talks about this. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? That's the good stuff, like being raised to new life with Christ. We saw it with Elena's baptism, right? We've been raised in new life with Christ. That's the good, but listen to what he says. And I may share his In order to live, we must die. In order to live the life that Christ, the new life in Christ, the old man must die. And this is a painful process. Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian in church history. He was around the time when Hitler was taking power in Nazi Germany. And he led an underground seminary of a bunch of men, godly men that did life together secretly outside of the Nazi purview. He was eventually imprisoned and he was killed in an internment camp, a concentration camp, just weeks before the camp was liberated. But listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. 1937, as Hitler was rising to power in Germany, listen to what he said. I don't even know if he understood to what degree his words would be prophetic. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That suffering is to be reckoned among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Can I tell you this? If you live a godly Christian life, you will experience suffering and persecution. Now, there's some stuff that happens to us because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Right? The part of being in fallen creation is not everything that happens is spiritual warfare, right? Some things just happen because they happen. It's the result of being living in a fallen world. However, however, if we live a life making a kingdom impact, you better believe the kingdom of darkness will push back. 
right? Persecution is to be expected. However, the disciples had become completely engulfed in this, in this despair of suffering. Jesus is leaving. Oh, he's, he's leaving us. Oh, we're going to have persecution. We're hated by the world. Oh, what are we going to do? The news of suffering and physical, the physical loss of Christ would have been enough to discourage anyone. But in their sadness, they missed what Jesus was really trying to tell them. The story of the farewell discourse is not, hey, everybody, be sad, I'm leaving. The message of the discourse is, it is to your advantage that I leave. It is not just good news, it is the best news. What I am doing is giving you an upgrade. We are doing better than just God with me. You are going to experience God in me. This is not something to despair over. This is something to rejoice in. Though there will be persecution, though there will be difficulty, we look forward to the refinement more than the suffering. And so what does he say then? That he will give them his Holy Spirit, right? That that they would be a part of that, but Christ is given to him. What what does he say in verse 7? I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. I read a commentary that equated it this way. It'd be like a mother and her children, right, living in a home together, and daddy's flying in from a long, long stay on business. And the mom has to go and pick up the father and has to be gone away from the kids for a few hours. So the mom leaves. But when the mom leaves, though, the mom is leaving and there's a tendency to despair that the mom is absent, the kids aren't concerned with the mom's absence. Why? She's going to get daddy. And daddy's coming home. The arrival of the father trumps the temporary leaving of the mother, right? And in the same way, Jesus is saying, listen, don't miss it. You're missing everything I'm trying to tell you. Don't be sad. Don't be moping around. Understand, don't live defeated. It is to your advantage that I go because I am sending something greater that is going to change the course of human history. And so the Holy Spirit would come, as we've talked about what he does. The Holy Spirit enlightens, he enables, he emboldens us. And think about this, for the church, when Jesus was around, the church was clumsy. The, the disciples were clumsy. They made a lot of mistakes. They asked a lot of questions. They didn't understand a whole lot. But then the Holy Spirit falls, and everything is different. Peter, the apostle Peter, after Pentecost is a completely different Peter than we see walking with Jesus, right? He has the helper. He has the Holy Spirit in him. The Holy Spirit indwelt Paul is a very different picture than we see of Saul walking around with all the spiritual people before coming to Christ, right? The Holy Spirit changes everything in their life. And so the Holy Spirit guides them through 
as they live, right? And so think about the things that they had to discuss. Think about the things that would be different from here on out. Jesus is leaving, right? So where do we go? Where is God calling us on mission? Well, it was easy when Jesus was here. We just followed Jesus. Jesus says, go to Galilee, we go to Galilee. Jesus says, go to Capernaum, we go to Capernaum. Jesus says, stay here. Jesus says, sleep here. Jesus says, eat this. We'll just do that. But now, all of these disciples, all of the followers of Jesus, all are given unique callings and missions in their life. So they don't go to just one place. They go all over the place. Some stay in Jerusalem. Some go to Samaria. Some go to the outer regions. Some go and establish churches, right, on giant missionary journeys. All of their callings are completely different. Every single one of them had to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit into this unique calling. How would they handle persecution? How would they handle people that are literally out to kill them, to destroy them? These were questions that the New Testament church would have to ask. Jesus isn't here to say, Jesus, what do we do? No, they seek God. They spend time in prayer. Read the book of Acts to see the dependency they had on the connection with the Holy Spirit. And God would lead them through his Holy Spirit, not God in, not God with me, but God in me. Acts 15 tells us the story of the inclusion of the Gentiles, like the Jerusalem council. What do we do with all of these people that are coming to Jesus, that are professing faith and trust in Jesus and surrendering to the Lordship of Christ? What do we do with them? Right? Do they need to be Jews? Do they need to act like Jews? They need to do all the Jewish things? No, what happens? These are deep theological questions these men are asking. And Jesus ain't around to ask. It's answer them. And so what do you see in the, in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 12, 15. You see a bunch of men who are led and full of the Holy Spirit, discerning God's direction, even without the physical presence of Jesus being in why? Because it is to their advantage that Jesus would leave so that divine empowerment could reside within them. For Jesus to say, abide in me. And the ramifications were far reaching. Have you ever thought about this? The New Testament canon, the canon of scripture, the 27 books, Matthew through Revelation that we have came about as a result of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't around to say, hey, pick this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one. That's not how it happened. But these men, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, abiding with God, God led them through his Holy Spirit to determine what we are reading even today. To determine what is truth, what is authoritative for our life. Listen, God has given divine enablement through his spirit. What he's ultimately doing is God has given his spirit to the church. So that they would, for the very first time, know him. And so in your notes, the spirit is sent to the church. So they would know God. They're not having to ask Jesus all these questions. And Jesus even says, right, like later he says, look, I... I have a lot to tell you, but I don't even, I'm not even going to tell you because you're not going to receive it now. You're not going to understand it now. right? But the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you. He will guide you into this truth. And so for the first time, the disciples would know God. Why? Because God resided within 
them. But through the Spirit, we have greater access to the heart of God because His heart lives within us. And so it's more than just knowing about God. To this point, they knew about God. But when the Holy Spirit would fall, they would know God in a real and relational way. Before it was religion and it was exercise and it was work. Now it is abundance and it is joyful and it is out of gratitude and thanksgiving. It's a complete shift. But because we have God's heart, the Spirit just doesn't affect us. Because we have God's heart, the things that break God's heart break ours. And so God begins to bend our heart toward others. Look secondly at the sending of the disciples. John 16, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Who is he sent to? He will convict the who? The world, right? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The world doesn't believe in me. The world doesn't believe that I am the Messiah, right? This was a reality. This is why they killed them. They thought he was a heretic. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. What did Jesus do in his resurrection? Anybody can die. In fact, the Romans made a spectacle of death. They had perfected death. It was the most gruesome, the most horrible. You don't offend Rome. You don't go against Rome lest you be crucified. Thousands of men throughout history were crucified. But my friend, only one was raised. So what does he say? Right? Concerning right concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, my resurrection will serve as proof then those that would put faith and believe in me would understand me as the source of righteousness, of judgment. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Notice he doesn't say the ruler of the world will be judged. The enemy stands condemned. Satan, the Satan, the accuser of the brethren, stands condemned by God Right now, in very real reality is, so does every one of his children. Now hang on, thought we were all God's family, not according to scripture. Man, Genesis chapter 3 tells us we chose who our father was. And when sin entered the world, we became of our father the devil. It is God who has to reconcile us throughout history. It is God, it is Christ who would come and redeem us. That means to buy back. He would buy back our life. He would buy back. He would adopt us into his family. So if there hasn't been an adoption that has taken place, then we are not of our father, the Lord, right? We are of our father, the devil. And Jesus said as much, right? And so he says, I'm going to convict the world of sin in its present state. The world would kill Christ because they believed him to be a heretic. And this was sin, right? They they would kill Christ. And then he would prove who he was through his death, burial, and resurrection. We would celebrate over 2,000 years later on an Easter Sunday in a gymnasium. We would celebrate Not just a crucified Jesus, but a risen Lord. And then of judgment. 
when they recognize their sin, when they recognize the righteous standard of God, and then they, by the way, they have the little object lessons running around. They call Christians, the church, showing God's righteousness in the way that they live and conduct themselves as called out from the world. Then they recognize that they are under judgment. This is what he means when he says that he will convict the world. They will see his righteousness. They will see their sin. They will see that they are under judgment. And they will respond. What will they respond to? The gospel. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's my question. How does Jesus, how does God do it? How does the Holy Spirit convict? the world look at verse 7 look back at verse 7 how does he do it the helper will be sent the Holy Spirit is going to be sent to the world who is he sent to the followers the followers of God the disciples They would be those that are armed with the Holy Spirit, armed to bear with the gospel, and they preach the message of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit to a lost and dying world. We are the vehicle of blessing. In the Old Testament, it was the lineage of Abraham. It was the lineage of Isaac. It was the lineage of Jacob and Judah, the lineage of David that the line that the blessing would come from. Now we who are God's people, who are, have been given and gifted his Holy Spirit, we get to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. So it's our message that convicts the world through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God has given us a role to play in the lostness of humanity. We are armed by God with the gospel. Alan Pruver, Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we love that verse, don't we? And what what an incredible promise that all who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. But listen to this in verse 14. But how will they call on him who they've not believed in? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus wasn't giving his Holy Spirit, wasn't sending his Holy Spirit for his disciples to enjoy and to be a reservoir of God's power and his grace. He was giving and entrusting his Holy Spirit The reward of their salvation came with a responsibility. And that responsibility is the gospel came to me because it was going to someone else. They would live in light of their mission their whole life. Because of what we have received from God, we have a responsibility to share with a lost and dying world. And so the the Holy Spirit of God came to the disciples because they were going to the world. The Spirit is sent to the church so that they will go into the world. They would go into the world and they would share the gospel. If the Holy Spirit is convict hearts, he only can do that when we share the gospel, when we present the hope that is found in Christ. 
that his Holy Spirit would be given so that his glory could be proclaimed, so that people could respond, so that more could be redeemed, so that more would be responsible to the gospel to share even greater in the glory of God. This is what the Holy Spirit, it is to our benefit. It is our, to our advantage that the Holy Spirit could be better than Jesus walking around with me. Jesus in me is better than that. And so they go to the world. But thirdly and finally, we see the sanctification of the disciples. In our own power, we are powerless to do the task that God has given us to do. We're powerless to share this gospel. We're powerless to do it with any effectiveness. But listen to John chapter 16. John 16, beginning in verse 12. I have still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now, right? You don't have the Holy Spirit yet, guys. And so there's plenty I could explain to you, but it's just going to really mess you up. When the Spirit of truth comes, however, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will guide you in truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, so he will guide you in truth. He will glorify me for what he take, for what for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say to you, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what does he do? The the disciples seemed to constantly lack discernment around Christ. They were constantly questioning. They were constantly trying to understand exactly who Jesus was. But the Holy Spirit would bring understanding. Verse 13, he will guide them in all truth. This is the enlightenment we talked about, right? We don't have the answers. You and I don't have the answers. But we are guided in truth through the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? We abide in Christ so we seek the one who does. I don't have the answers. I don't know the next strategy, the next vision. I, but I seek the one who has declared the end from the beginning. I abide in him. Verse 14, he will glorify Christ. Listen, if you are being led by any spirit that does not immediately throw you back to the gospel, it does not immediately rapture you in what Christ has done in you, if it does not proclaim Christ in you first before Christ through you to others, it is not of the Holy Spirit. It may be, you may be led by some spirit, but not every spirit is the Holy Spirit. Amen? Not every emotion is given to you by God. In fact, John Calvin would say that our heart is a factory of idols. We just manufacture new idols as we go. We get victory over one thing, and here comes another idol, right? And so on our own, right, we are powerless, but it will glorify Christ. So what does that look like? We glorify what Christ has accomplished in us rather than what we ever might accomplish. I want you to hear this. Whatever God uses to do in my life for his kingdom, will never in my mind be greater than what Christ has already done in me. Y'all, Christ has brought me from death to life. If I ever get over that fact, then I am completely disconnected myself from the power of God. What Christ has done in me will 
always be, must always be greater than what Christ could ever do through me. And in the same way, the Spirit of God will empower us, but He will glorify Christ. He will glorify Christ in my life so that we recognize that everything we do, we don't accomplish on our own power, but we accomplish it through the work of Jesus Christ. He will throw the Holy Spirit loves him some Jesus, and he will continue to throw us back on his work, not our own. And then verse 15, he will empower the church. This is that divine enablement. Listen to what he says in verse 15. All that, is the, fa- all that the Father has is mine. Right? Therefore, I said that he'll take what is mine and he'll declare it to you. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Matthew 19. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. All power and authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Jesus tells his disciples, all power and authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Now you in that power go. What does he say here? All that the Father has is mine. And the Holy Spirit will take what is the Father's that has been given to me and he will declare it to you. Right? He will divinely enable you to the task that he has called you to do. We, so what does this look like? We depend solely on his power and his provision in our life to fulfill the mission of our life. We depend on him. We are needy for his power. We are needy for him to provide. We are dependent on him for everything. You see, the Holy Spirit teaches us to abide. We are to abide. We are to remain in him. And so the church is sent, the spirit is sent to the church so that they will grow in Christ. As the spirit is given, he will guide, he will glorify Christ, and he will empower the church. We will grow. We will make progress my friend if you're here today and you have made a decision at some point in your life to follow Jesus and you have never grown past that point can I caution you about something let me caution you about this for you to say that I am in a right relationship with Christ but to have never grown in your relationship with him is to produce have no evidence No evidence of the fruit, the principal fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if the Holy Spirit is how we connect to God and you have not grown in him, you have not been challenged, you have not been made new, you have not been regenerated, you have not been sanctified, you have not been restored. If if that has not happened, then what you are saying to me is there is a way to be connected with God outside of the Holy Spirit. Because where the Holy Spirit is, there's change. There has to be. It's divine. It's not something that we muster. It's something the Holy Spirit gives us. We are changed. What I would argue is if you're here today and you've prayed a prayer or checked a box, walked an aisle, and you've never grown past that point, you have never encountered the Holy Spirit. You have never encountered the life-transforming power of the gospel. It's not just me who says this. Corey Ten Boone says, a person is either a missionary or a mission field. They're either somebody armed with the gospel, preaching the gospel because they have been changed by the gospel, so they know they are responsible for the gospel, 
or there's somebody that has experienced no change in their life and they need the gospel. Missionary or mission field? Uh, Charles Spurgeon ups the ante and he says every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. They're either a missionary armed with the gospel, preaching the gospel because they know it is their responsibility to be good stewards of the gospel because they've been divinely changed by God, or they are walking, they are a walking lie. They're an imposter. Walking with Christian people, wearing Christian clothes, doing Christian things, but completely disconnected from the power of God. It is his Holy Spirit that glows us, that draws us, that enables us. We are not called to abide with God. We are called to abide in him. So if you haven't ever experienced a life transformation that happens through an encounter with his Holy Spirit, I want to invite you to do that today. Whether you're here in person or whether you're online, believe that God's Holy Spirit can move in either venue, through either mode. And I would invite you to respond, maybe for the first time, and accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? As we enter a time of response, you have the opportunity today Alan, I've, I've made a decision, I, I went to a VBS, I, whatever, raised my hand, whatever you did, but I've never changed. But today I want to respond to a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want him to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. You can do that today. God has made himself available to you through the work of Jesus Christ by the means of the Holy Spirit today that you can pray to receive him into your heart and life and he can make you new. Not to religion, not to trying harder, doing better, but to being made new. What he's done in my life, he can do in yours. If you would respond in obedience just a moment I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a time of response this is a time for you to align yourself with whatever God has laid on your heart to do whatever decision he has called you to make would you respond to his Holy Spirit would you respond to that still small voice that is drawing you would you enter a relationship with Christ today here's what you need to do that's you in here and you need a relationship with Christ when I say amen we're going to stand and we're going to sing an old hymn an oldie but a goodie we're going to sing a hymn about Christ and his blood has made us new and washed us clean when we do that I want you to find this center aisle it's literally the only aisle in this place you shouldn't have a hard time finding find this center aisle we've got counselors that would love to talk to you I would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're the most important person in this room. Don't leave without doing business with him. But if there's any other decision that you need to make, some may need to join our church, join what we're doing. Maybe you need to follow the example of Elena, and maybe you need to get your baptism in order. Whatever the case may be, pray that you would respond. This altar is open. Maybe you need to pray for yourself or someone else. You need to intercede for someone that you know 
that is not going to be condemned. They're condemned already, right? They need to respond to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to intercede for someone today. There's a place here at this altar for you to come and to pray. But whatever the Spirit would lead, here's what I would ask you not to do. Don't quench it. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't refuse in your pride to not do what God is calling you to do today. Father, have your will and way in our hearts and in this place. We love you and look forward to seeing how you